Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Chalfus. In this week's episode, I'm chatting to Teresa Lust, author of a new book called A Blissful Feast, subtitled Culinary Adventures in Italy's Piedmont, Maremma and Le Marche. A Blissful Feast is a combination memoir and cookbook with the stories and histories behind a personal selection of Italian recipes. It is, as Teresa Lust explains in the introduction, the story of her journey from chef to cook, which is kind of the wrong way around for most books of this kind. Teresa Lust shifted from cooking professionally in restaurants to cooking for a family, growing their own fruit and veg and raising chickens in a large garden. And her book tells the story of how an initial visit to her mother's family village in Rocca Canavese near Turin triggered her to become an accomplished translator and teacher of Italian, quite apart from a cook. We began by talking about that first visit. I visited my mother's ancestral village with her and my older sister uh, back when I didn't speak any Italian. And I just, just sitting at the table, the first meal, I was so captivated and so drawn in that I, I knew I, I just wanted to pursue their cuisine and meet them on a on a deeper level and and discover their their cuisine that captivation um comes over i i i really enjoyed reading about your meeting with with your aunt Giuseppina as a cook um i was wondering though i mean were you ready for that did your mother cook like that Yes, well, it, I mean, she didn't cook in a way that was 100% Piemontese or even 100% Italian, uh, but we had meals together as a family. I have three sisters with a family of six, and we had an extended family, huge family in Yakima, Washington. So we grew up with with meals every night that were prepared and not just heated. And uh, my other grandmother had a big garden. And so we grew up with with fresh vegetables, which I didn't always appreciate as a child. I sometimes <laughs> found it embarrassing that we didn't buy our vegetables at the store. Like normal people, they were kind of funny looking and they had dirt on them. And we had big family dinners, extended family dinners on holidays and birthdays. And, and those were always joyous occasions. So there was a lot of that sensibility growing up. And I feel that there was a certain irony because I, I went to Italy looking to really develop that, that sensibility, that, that uh, mode of eating and appreciating food. And it was a little bit like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, because the more I learned about it, the more I discovered, the more I realized I already had that. Uh, I'd grown up with it all along. It's it's pretty blessed to have had that growing up, I suspect, because coming coming to Italy was was for you. It, you you make it sound like coming home. It that was so surprising to me. I was really nervous and um, actually bordering bordering on afraid to meet my relatives because 
I, I didn't speak the language very well. And I think people have a, a mythology. I know people have a mythology about what Italy is like. And, and my experience was very different. I mean, and, and yet so ultimately satisfying and more satisfying perhaps because it wasn't a mythology. It, it was, it was a genuine. Well, one of the things that you do throughout the book is is you take the recipes or what what your families and friends are doing, um, and you you use those as a sort of jumping off point to talk about culture and cookery and and ingredients and what have you. And I was struck um, when you talk about Turin, you, you've got quite a great long section on grissini on breadsticks, and for most people. You know, they're there on the table, and if your food is late in arriving, well, you probably break a few open and, and, and devour them. A good breadstick is, is a great thing, and you, you go into that in some length. So tell me, tell me how you discovered breadsticks. Those were one of the first discoveries I made the, the day after my first trip to Italy. Uh, but the, the, the more we arrived in the afternoon and the next day we walked to the bakery that my, I'll call her my cousin without going into the genealogy, <laughs> my, my, <laughs> my cousin and her husband own in the, in the, um, main piazza in this tiny village of Rocca Canavese. And, uh, Caterina is my cousin and her husband, Augusto was in the bakery making grissini, and I recount this in in the book. Um, I had no idea. I only thought grissini were those bland, dusty little things that come in a packet. I don't even think. I mean, the Olive Garden hadn't even come to the fore with their their puffy, uh, generic breadsticks. That's uh, just my opinion, but uh, so I didn't even know what a, a fake breadstick was. I only knew what those packaged industrial breadsticks were, and so to see these you know, meter-long, skinny, gnarled, uh, crispy, and delightfully fragrant breadsticks being made before my eyes—you saw your cousin making grissini. You learned to make grissini yourself. Um, and that would be fine, but you also go into the history of Grissini and lots of the other things you talk about. So, how, tell me, tell me about the history of Grissini. They were first made for a um, Piedmontese duca, the uh, di Savoia, uh, Vittorio Amadeo. Uh, as a child, he was sickly. Um, his father had died, and he had taken over the position as. Uh, uh, Il Duca, but his mother was acting as the the regent in his stead. And at any rate, he he was a sickly boy, and they tried everything to to get him stronger and to heal. And the court doctors decided that what he needed to fortify himself was a, a bread that was was mostly crust, because at in those days it was thought that the crust was the the most healthy part of the bread. And I even relay in the book, my mother still thinks that, and she used to say, eat your crusts, they're good for you, when I was a child. The court baker created this bread that was increasingly longer and skinnier so that it would bake up to be crustier and crustier. And they also made it out of 
white flour as opposed to the whole grain flour that was more readily available to the poor people, which of course now we know whole wheat bread is more healthy, contains more nutrients than white flour. But in those days, it was thought that the pure white flour was the healthiest. And so it was rare in that day that to make a white bread that was all crust. And and the result finally was this bread that was as long as your outstretched arms and uh, as thin as your finger and essentially all crust. Uh, and um for whatever miraculous reason, um, Vittorio Amadeo grew strong and healed and uh, assumed uh, the, the regency and it went on um, to become uh, his heirs to become the first kings of Italy. And so the, the, the tradition, the lore is that it was all thanks to Grissini that he acquired that strength to, to have the Duca become the uh, the kingdom of Italy eventually. Um, who knows? I, I'm fine with that. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why not? I mean, it, it, it makes perfect sense. Um, I, I, I confess I haven't yet tried your recipe for Grissini. In fact, I've never really made Grissini. The closest I've come is is a kind of cheese straw um, of a more English variety. Oh. But one of the nice things that you've done in the book is to translate these recipes of, of family and friends and, and you've given weights and measures and and what I would call proper methods for doing it. Was that difficult? Because family recipes, friends recipes are notoriously uh, well I was gonna say imprecise, but they're not so much imprecise, but you the the person doing it knows how 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 to do it. But to learn from them must be very difficult. Exactly. I think that part of um my background cooking in restaurants really helped with that because I think with practice, you do acquire a feel for what is the right amount. So I could, I could translate those from my own experience pretty readily. The only problem was trying to put them on paper because even though I think that the stories and the chapters themselves are really what I'm they're the essence of the book. I wanted to put the recipes in for people who were inspired to try them at home. And so I knew I needed to put amounts and baking times and temperatures and things like that. Uh, so I had to do a lot of work in my own kitchen, making something and then sort of extrapolating, well, what is it that I just did? How How much was this? And I, I fortunately could could do things like, you know, one medium onion. I think for most cooks, that is precise enough rather than saying, I don't know, 100 grams of minced onion or something. Sure. Uh, I, I think that that slows us down too much in the kitchen when we're so hung up on, on the exact measurements. But at the other hand, we are a little bit insecure as cooks and we just, we need uh, in America, I'm imagining in most English speaking places, we need a little bit more advice and precision than than just a grandmother saying, "Well, you take this and you cook it a bit," and that's that's how old cookbooks talked. And you know, he put it in a hot oven, which is an oven that you could not really you can hold your hand in only for an instant before you have to draw it out. That's how you knew it was hot enough. Or if you could hold it in there for the amount of time to say a hail mary, that was a slow oven. <laughs> so, <laughs> but. Um, it's interesting. You there, you said a hundred grams of minced onion, 
And of course, Americans, by and large, don't even like that. They want to be told two two tablespoons or half a cup or whatever it might be. And I think I, I, I should have made a note, but there's a there's a part in your book where you say, for heaven's sake, just get a scale. And, you know, if we all work with scales, things would be so much better. Is there any hope of that? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. I feel like I'm on a crusade. And and I even, I was, I, I let that crusade kind of come forth in the chapter about making um, a, a cake, a torta, de tre, the cake of threes, um, because it's all measured out in, 100 gram increments or 300 gram increments of uh, uh, flour and ricotta and uh, three eggs and sugar. And it's such an easy, beautiful way to be able to especially bake because baking does depend more on precision. It does depend on um, measured amounts. And we are so resistant as Americans to take on I would even be happy if we were weighing our ingredients in pounds and ounces because for things like baking, it would be so much more precise. And I don't know. We Americans drag our feet, and I don't know if it's going to happen soon. And I, I think that if if a, a personal crusade to get people to, to use a scale when they're trying to, to cook and bake, and if other people take it on, um, maybe we'll get there. But uh, I'm a little dubious. And how about taking on rabbit? Um I mean that's another thing where you 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 enjoy your rabbit here in Italy and uh get back to America not so easy to find a rabbit. No, not only is it difficult to find here, it is very expensive and so it's not the poor man's food that it is uh still in Italy. Although I think even there that's that's rather changing. And I think, though, in it, it's it, the expense is the least of it. It's still for us. It's a very cultural thing that we we just can't bring ourselves to eat poor little Peter Rabbit or uh, Thumper or whoever we whatever charming um, character we think that that rabbit might be. And I think we're missing out. It's uh, rabbit is very healthy meat. It's very lean. It's uh, it's uh, good for you. And and I. I, I'm not a vegetarian. I'm an omnivore, but I do try to eat meats that are humanely raised. And a rabbit, just by the very nature of what it requires to to thrive, can't be raised like a chicken in uh, industrial battery conditions. Mm-hmm. Another of the things you go into in in mouthwatering detail is is the banya <laughs> cauda. Um, first of all. Explain for people who don't, who haven't had a banya cauda or don't know what it is, what is a banya cauda? Uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about how that came about. Sure. Banya cauda in, in the dialect of uh, the Piedmont means hot sauce or hot bath. And it's a, a dipping sauce made from olive oil, garlic, and anchovies. And those are sort of simmered together very gently until everything dissolves into this amalgamation. Um, and then it's served warm in like a, a little uh, hot pot over a, a flame, like sort of like a fondue pot. Um, 
And uh, into that, traditionally, is dipped uh, are dipped vegetables of the season. It is a it's a dish served in late late August into the early winter. And traditionally, it was the the meal shared by the vineyard workers when they were out after the harvest pruning the vines. So you're thinking in late October, November, when it's it's cold out there and they, they needed something to warm themselves over fire. These are poor field hands. And uh, so they're vegetables of the season, cardoons, cauliflower, carrots, potatoes, Savoy cabbage that is, they're all, they come in a platter and they're dipped in this garlicky anchovy rich sauce and, and eaten. And that's the origins. And it really is another one of those quiz, part of the cucina, cucina povera, the cuisine of the poor. But I will say that it is enjoyed and has historically been enjoyed by people throughout the, the Piedmont, um, from peasants to, to dukes and kings. And it also became a family. It's just a family meal. Still to this day, it's it's more an experience or an event even than a recipe because people talk about it as una banya cauda. Uh, they're going to get together to have a banya cauda, which means assembling a group of people, family, friends at someone's house or in someone's barn traditionally or in a neighborhood trattoria. Because by the time you assemble all of the ingredients, all of the vegetables that you need, you really are cooking for a crowd. And so there's this essence of, of a, a festive occasion to, to eat this meal together. Um, Elizabeth David, in her book on Italian fee- food, describes bagna cauda because it is one of the signature dishes of, of the Piedmont. And she, she gives essentially that history. And she says, of course, it's so full of garlic and anchovies that uh, not everybody can stomach it. But if you can take all that garlic, um, it's a blissful feast. And so I sort of turned that around. It was a little bit of a backhanded compliment that she gave. It is a blissful feast. And that's really through the book what I'm hoping people to encourage people to make out of whatever it is that they prepare for their table. I have to say, you know, it is, it, it, it's a useful book because you've got the stories, you've got some history, and, you, and, and you've got some recipes. But I wonder to what extent, um, how much of this for you is about food per se, recipes for making food to eat, and how much of it is about setting down this not just family history, but cultural history, and establishing your own ties with with your mother's country. Oh, that's beautifully put. I think the great part of it is about that. Uh, I I feel like uh, for me, this this realization of how special it is to have a family connection to food, to make time to appreciate a meal. And by that, I don't mean spend all day in the kitchen. None of us has time to do that. But, but just to, to, to take, make cooking and sitting together with people or eating even by yourself and, and being more a part of the experience instead of just do it to fuel you yourself. Uh, I feel very fortunate to have that experience and 
I, I want to share that with other people. And I'm, I'm hoping that my stories and my research, which are, it's about little things, little kind of unimportant things in the grand scheme of, of it all, but, but that they'll make other people realize, Oh, I actually have memories like this. They're not her memories, but, but I have memories of my own. I've had, I've had, uh, experiences that have generated these thoughts in myself. My food is important. My meals are important. And that's kind of, I wanted this communal extension for other people, as well as just for myself to pay tribute to something that I realize has played such an important role in my life. Teresa Lust and her book, A Blissful Feast, is out now, published by Pegasus Books. We only had time to talk about a very few of the dishes Teresa writes about in her book. And if you're interested not just in her very entertaining stories about how she came to know them, but also some of the history and lore, I highly recommend A Blissful Feast. You can get more details from Teresa's website at teresalost.com, or one word, and I'll add a link as well in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com. And if you've been listening to the podcast for a good long while and have a feeling you've heard Teresa Lost before, you're right. She helped me unravel the story of when is a zucchini not a zucchini back in 2016. It's one of my favorite episodes, so in case you haven't heard it, I'll put a link to that in the show notes too. As for this episode, I hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, please leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help to put Eat This Podcast in front of other people who are looking for something interesting to listen to. And while I'm in a self-promoting mood, let me remind you that you can follow me on Twitter at Eat Podcast and Instagram at Eat This Podcast. And of course, you can always drop me a line, jeremy at eatthispodcast.com. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. For now, though, from me, Jeremy Chirpus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye, and thanks for listening. Thank you.